Sosin, and this is Six Degrees of Innovation, a podcast that grew out of my natural curiosity and love of innovative solutions to big and little challenges. Each episode, I'll speak with someone who is making an impact in an innovative way. Listen in as we talk about what got them started, what problem they're tackling, and how it's going. For me, innovation that centers people over profits is the most exciting kind. Also, planet over profits. Basically, I think we should just put people and planet together at one at the top. But anyway, this episode is about putting people at the front of leadership, and my guest exemplifies it simply by being my guest. We've never met before, but she volunteered to join me for a dress rehearsal episode in a community Slack channel, and the conversation was so interesting that I wanted to share it with you. This week, I'm talking to Allison Stemmis. Allison is a community builder whose work focuses on developing high-quality programming to create a people-first leadership revolution. I'm especially interested in her insights into the future of work and how people-first leadership will shape it. Um, Allison, I want to start by asking about your viral layoff post last year. Uh, what really struck me the most was how you focused on helping others see the sign of impending layoffs and helping your 99 colleagues. And I think that that just really embodied people first leadership. And so um, I wanted to know if you had any stories about how that post helped others, um, either seeing the signs for themselves or connecting um, some of those 99 people and um, just kind of tell that story with a with the frame of the um, people first leadership. Well, thanks, Rachel. And um, I'm so excited to talk about that post. It it certainly wasn't something I thought would go viral. It was just something that felt incredibly natural in that moment. So um, context is I was laid off in July of 2022. Obviously, the tech layoffs are still continuing into 2023. Um, but my husband was laid off uh, just two months before me. And because of his layoff experience, I was able to sort of see that I was trending in a similar direction. And I then thought, given all these similarities in our experience, uh, budgets being frozen, hiring being frozen, deadlines and projects, not having timelines, deliverables, goals, uh, and not being able to get answers on like long-term strategy. I knew, I knew it was headed my way. And so I started looking for a job. Um, I hadn't had any success by the time I was laid off. So I was certainly was still scrambling and still in that like, oh no moment um, when I got the call. But ultimately the layoff post that went viral, uh, I think I'm really just, as I reflect back on, I'm really grateful I did it because it took a lot of vulnerability to say to my network, I've lost my job. Not only did I lose my job, but my husband lost his job two months ago. And and here's the rest of the, <laughs> the story. Here's the thing. Here's where I'm at. And so the things that came from that are the people who are impacted with me, the 99 other folks who are impacted by the layoff. I know that a lot of them felt empowered to post about their experience following my post, which was gratifying is a, like the wrong word to say, because I don't want to say I was you know happy to see the people talk about being laid off, but I'm glad that others felt empowered to share their story. Um, I ended up landing my next job because of that post. So my now manager saw that and said to me, sort of exactly what you just said, this is very people first, very kind of you, very generous for you to warn other people. Um, do you want to talk? And so we had a conversation. So I landed a job 
based on that post, which is really neat. And then I had a, a media organization reach out to say, you know, can we interview regarding this post? Um, and the person who actually interviewed me ended up being laid off from that company a few weeks later Oy. and um, used the things that I said in that post and in that conversation to say, like, I saw those red flags. I saw those same things happening. And so it's interesting to see how the post has spiraled to help other people you know, identify these red flags and sort of say, okay, I think this is coming my way. Um, and also just get so much traction. I mean, my inbox, my LinkedIn inbox was flooded. I certainly did not get back to everybody. I just couldn't. And I was also trying to take any information of jobs being shared and funnel it back to the 99 other. So while also trying to support people, a layoff is a lot like a breakup. I've talked about that a lot with my peers that like, you have to treat it like a relationship is ending. You have to unfollow the founders on Twitter. <laughs> you have to stop following the company. Like you have to grieve the relationship with that company. And so uh, I was doing all those things while also trying to manage this like viral post. So I think to answer your question, like I think it was really helpful for a lot of people. It certainly allowed me to empower others to post, but also allowed me to connect people with jobs. I got a job out of it. Um, and so, and I know I was able to connect people on the other side of it as well. So it got much bigger than I ever anticipated, but I think it did some good. And uh, that is usually how what I do when I feel like I'm not well, as I try to give back into the world and just like believe in karma, I think good things will come back. And so that is just how I show up in times of chaos in my own life. And so I'm, I'm glad it was helpful for obviously myself, but also others. Yeah, that's, um, that's fantastic. And I think the idea of um, showing up for others when, when things are feeling hard is um, a really fantastic way to move through life. I really love that. Um, we should all we should all try to do a little bit of that. Um, <laughs> so one of the things that that really comes through in what you're talking about is is the you were building community. You were building community in this kind of ripple effect that you weren't even able to necessarily foresee or probably to quantify in retrospect. Um, and obviously, community is really important to you. Um, community is really important to me, and I think that there's a lot of um, kind of like a little eye innovation happening around community development, particularly within the workforce. Um, and so I'm curious if you can talk a bit about um, what people-led leadership means to you in terms of community, uh, like work community, and um, what makes it, you know, sort of radical. Yeah, and this is such a fun question. I think a lot of people are throwing around the word community just to do so. And I think it's one of the things that is, um, it's not the question you're asking, but to say, like, I think a lot of people are putting community at the front of everything. Like, we're a community. And, and it's almost the new, like, we're a family, but it's like, we're a community of thought leaders of whatever. And it's all just like crap, right? Like, <laughs> it's not a real community. And I think the thing that feels radical in communities, people who are actually showing up and doing it right almost feels radical now because mm -hmm. it is the buzzword of the last two years. I think you actually have to show up for your community in some way. And I think it means being incredibly intentional about how you do that and incredibly thoughtful. It's really easy when you have a community of people to like ship a new thing or ask for something from a group of people or put up a program, but like without it being thoughtful and cohesive and strategic, you're not really taking care of your community, you know? And I think like, I I'm a mom, I have a, a family of three, right? Like they're my community. <laughs> Again, like 
the family is the new community, right? <laughs> They're my community. And if I wasn't thoughtful about how I operated in this unit, I wouldn't be actually taking care of it. Like, but I do my best to be incredibly thoughtful with my family, incredibly thoughtful with their time, intentional about how we spend time together, really cultivate a unit internally, like within my own home. And I think radical community looks like intentionality. And I think it's just so important to be thoughtful about how you're showing up and taking care of your people. And uh, when people are like, we're a community-led organization or we're a community-led venture fund, but if it's just like you put a bunch of people together in a platform and then use some technology like to connect people, like it's not real and no one's going to buy into it. You're going to get limited traction or you're going to do webinars for your community that don't land because they're not thoughtful of people's time. And so I'm rambling, but I feel very like passionate about being really thoughtful and respectful of people's time and intentional about how you build community. And I think communities that are are thoughtful about how they're showing up and creating and giving back or engaging are the ones that are going to win out among other communities, um, especially with them popping up all over the place. So that's sort of my my take on what is a radical community is just to like, to kind of give a damn, you know, I think it's really important to just try to do the thoughtful, rightful, like right intentional thing. Yeah, I think, um, especially during COVID when physical, you know, in-person communities were having to shift. I think there was such a rush to um, build something and it was sort of like we're, we're, we're building without knowing what we're building for. And some things that came out of that I think were amazing. Um, mm-hmm. And some things I think um, it's it's a great opportunity to kind of rethink. Um, so um, especially as we're now moving perhaps out of a pandemic, maybe, yeah, um, or at least moving back into more in-person gathering um, and in-person office space and and things like that. Um, the the uh, desire to sort of you know build new community, build community, continue continue community, etc. Um, I think is something that a lot of organizations are really struggling with. And um, what what do you think around that kind of intentional community building is important as we move forward into the future of work? Yeah, I think the pandemic really taught us a lot about, I mean, not just the pandemic, right? But the past three years have taught us a lot about inclusion and allyship and accessibility of community and creating spaces for people. And I think in some ways, some of us have been able to find the world a bit more accessible uh, I think especially people with disabilities, right? Like remote work and what has happened in the pandemic has been incredibly scary. So I don't want to dismiss that. I have a child who's high risk. Like my world felt very small during the pandemic, but I also felt so capable because I was able to keep him safe during the pandemic and also continue to work, which felt like such a privilege. And it is certainly a privilege. And so I think I think as we start to think about community moving forward outside of the pandemic, and again, that intentionality piece is like, how are we respectful again of people's time, but also again, creating places that are spaces that are inclusive, that are accessible for everybody that people want to go to and like they find themselves accepted in that space. And, and what does it look like to be an ally and community to others? What does it look like to be really thoughtful? And, you know, I think of just like small things, uh, which is like the accessibility of um, live events, right? Let me back up. If you're doing a virtual event, some people right, can turn on the transcript button. That is like a very low lift that makes a virtual event accessible. Now, how do you do that in an in-person event? Obviously, you can have 
somebody doing ASL in the moment to translate those things, but people are like turning that button off when it comes to, you know, IRL events. And so again, I think it's like the, the steps we took towards accessibility, inclusion and allyship in the pandemic to bring people into spaces. Are you still taking that and being intentional? And I hate to like overuse that word, but I think it's really important to translate that into real life events. I think the answer is no. I think a lot of people are like, oh, a break from all that. Let's just go gather for a happy hour and go back to what we were doing. And I get it. It's a challenge. In some ways, it's more expensive, obviously, if you're going to contract out somebody to like, you know, do ASL live, you know, in the moment um, to sign your programming. But I think there's, I'm just using that example, but I think there's a million other ways that accessibility shows up in in-person in events. And I think it's really important. I would love to go to conferences. I would love to be going to conferences all over. But again, I have a high-risk child. I'm going to limit my exposure still because the world is not free of COVID. And uh, so I just, I don't get the same access as the people who do have that freedom. And that's just like the nature of my situation. So um, yeah, I think that's really important is to translate what we've learned, bring it back to in-person as whether it's returned to office or whatever the case may be, and just be really thoughtful about about the steps we did take and not losing that insight and those lessons learned. I think that that makes a lot of sense. I think that it's, I haven't thought about that in quite in that way before, but we were, because we were going to sort of this whole new thing, inclusion in some ways became a little bit easier because we knew we it was all new. So we could add in all sorts of new things. Yeah. And now going back to the old, less inclusive ways, it's really easy to just kind of default to same old, same old and not not carry that growth and that that um that change through into instead of same old, same old in person, but you know, new and improved in person. Yeah. Um, I think that's really interesting. Yeah. And uh, I think, oh, sorry. The thing that I think is really important, right, is like for me, and I can only speak for my own lens, obviously, but like as a mom, I felt so much more empowered in, in a lot of different ways in this like virtual world. And I spend a lot of time, I've, I've been thinking about this with like an, another co creator, but is, is like, how do we create spaces for moms who are in like tech and innovative spaces? And in the virtual world, I felt like we were invited back to the party again, which was like really neat. And I've talked about this like parental cool down, which when you say that you're a parent in a startup or in the tech world, like you don't really get a lot of invites after hour, like happy hours. Like it's like the parental, I call it the parental cool down because like you're no longer cool, right? Like you're not invited. <laughs> it's kind of like, it's admittedly, but like you miss a lot in those like after hours spaces um, that you're prioritizing your family. And so I think in the virtual world, we were invited back into those spaces. Those spaces became accessible. And so I was, um, co-creator, her name's Laise. She's the author of Hacking Communities. Um, her and I have talked a lot about, and she's expecting her first child, but we've talked about like this parental cool down and like, how do we create spaces for specifically moms to take up space in innovation centers and innovation ecosystems and start to co-create with one another. And I think that that again is this like accessibility piece, like the pandemic made some things really accessible. And so as we go back to like what was before, like I'd almost rather challenge us all to create new and and really be thoughtful about how we bring others into our spaces and not let you know parents like me be uncool. Like I'm capable of creating, I'm capable of doing really interesting and unique things while also being a parent. I didn't lose who I am as an individual just because I had a child. And I think that is a narrative that just like, I think we've moved past it. So like, can we operate together as a collective and and let let the world be a bit more accessible to everybody. And so I don't know. Um, I think it's just really an important lesson learned. I a hundred percent agree. I um I, I think that that is is really important. And I think 
you know, knowing that we don't really have to operate in a strictly nine to five world anymore Mm -hmm. is all the more reason to bring everyone back to the table and, and include them in more events because, you know, the timing in some ways it might be even easier for you now. Um, so I think that that's really interesting. So you mentioned being, being a mother. And so I want to ask, um, if you could, if you could elaborate on the, on your story around, um, required fun or enforced fun is not always fun. Oh gosh. Yes. So I was expecting my first and only child, uh, back in 2016 and I was working in the human resources department. (laughs) Um, the director of that department came to me and and asked me to coordinate a a team building event. And he knew that I really wanted to get into learning development and instructional design. And so it was kind of a segue into like, this is the thing you want to go to. So can you coordinate team building? And of course, again, this intentionality, thoughtfulness thing has been with me my whole time. And so I'm like, okay, how do we connect people? How do we like have clear outcomes of what team building looks like? And I start to put together a plan for what this could really shape up as, as a really true team building event, which I agreed that we deeply needed. And he kind of came to me and said like, well, I was thinking more of like a kickball game. And I was four months pregnant. And um, I, one, admittedly just knew that kickball was not going to achieve outcomes of actual team building. Like, right, it's it's just fun. And I also find kickball kind of boring. But the main reason is, is I'm incredibly competitive. Like, there's something in my brain that is absolutely not wired properly that like, when it comes to competition, like, <laughs> I will go, like, off the charts, not okay <laughs> to win. And at four months pregnant, I was like, this is not a good thing for me to do. It's not safe, because I'm not, I'm not capable of doing this in a way that is like, okay. So I have that self-awareness, so it counts for something. Um, so I said like, well, you know, I'm I'm happy to do that, but I'm not going to participate. So basically it's like a way to say like, this isn't going to achieve team building. I've, I'm not like, I'll just keep score. I'll sit on sidelines or whatever. And his response to me was, you know, some pregnant people do work out. And, um, From HR. <laughs> yeah. um, and I, I was like, so taken aback, right? In this moment. And I, and I hate that I did this, but I made up some excuse of like, well, I'm just really clumsy and I want to be really careful. And like, I'm not clumsy. I was a competitive ice skater. I did synchronized ice skating in college. So it means like 16 people on ice at the same time and like us all safely doing the same thing. So like, I am not clumsy. I'm very capable. And so um, again, I hate that I made that excuse. I was just so taken aback that I felt the need to like, I don't know, blame myself, minimize, you know, things women do. And I just felt so like, I hate that I did that again, but it was just such like an, oh my gosh, is this really how you see this thing? And and I think fun is often thought of as like team building. And in some ways I get it, right? Like I went and started my master's in communication management because I was really interested in organizational relationships and interpersonal relationships. And in some ways, yes, relationship development does happen in things like kickball or, you know, happy hours, whatever, like relationship does happen there because people are able to engage with one another, which of course enhances relationships. But when it comes to team building, right, like that's completely different. If you want relationship development, that's one thing. But if you want to build a team that's cohesive and operating well, you have to do that differently. And fun doesn't do that. Like, I think that is like the biggest mistake is saying like, oh, if we just like have an open bar, fun will happen. Like, and team building will happen. Like, those are not the same and fun might happen, but only for some, again, they get back to this accessibility and inclusion and allyship piece, right? Like that's problematic in its own right. But I mean, ultimately in this example, I was just like, 
obviously the comment about saying some pregnant people do work out was like pretty brutal, but like, um, in general, I think it's just such a, a terribly wonderful example of like how people get team building wrong and then how people ostracize others when they get it wrong. And I think it's the risky run when you do that. And I, and again, it's all about being thoughtful about others and just like taking a second to pause before you, you know, come up with an idea and also just think about the outcome and really get focused on like, what is the ideal outcome of however you're showing up? And I think as I've, you know, driven the word intentionality you know, into the ground in this conversation, the way you are intentional is to think about what's the ideal outcome and how do you actually measure that? And if you can't do those things, you can't answer like, what's the actual purpose of this? What's the actual outcome? How might I measure that? Then don't do it. It's a waste of your time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so again, kickball isn't going to have measurable outcomes other than me probably injuring myself <laughs> and a hospital bill. <laughs> um, and also ruining relationships at work uh, because of my competitive nature. But um, anyway, so yeah, it was a, it was an awful moment. We didn't do a kickball game. I don't actually know that we did any team building <laughs> point, but uh, yeah. Oh gosh, what a memory. I, well, I also think your point about um, the the competitiveness and outcomes of team building versus relationship building is really important, right? Because if you're if you're trying to build a team, then competition isn't necessarily the direction you want to go, right. but collaboration. And so if you if you set something up where they're going to be varying degrees of competitiveness, varying degrees of skill, various degrees of interest, you know, you're really, you might get some relationship building, you might get some fun, but you're also probably not going to get a lot of team building or maybe much of the other stuff either. Anyhow. So I think that's, yeah. Um, I feel like there could be an entirely separate podcast about um, (laughs) team building gone awry. They're totally good. Yes. Um, And, you know, the important legal lessons that are learned from those situations. (laughs) Um, But we'll save that for another episode. (laughs) Um, I also um, would love this. This is going to sound weirdly academic, um, but I would like to hear um, a bit more, particularly as we're, we're thinking about, you know, the we started the conversation around layoffs and the ongoing layoffs in the in the tech industry and where they may or may not could spread into other industries as well. And you mentioned something about the uncertainty reduction theory. Mm-hmm. And I think that sounds like something that could be really helpful, both organizationally, but also as a bit of a kind of touchstone for individuals. Um and so I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about the theory, because I had never heard of it until until you and I talked. Yeah. Um, so as I mentioned, I started my master's in communication because I'm fascinated by organizational communication and interpersonal too. So this theory starts at the personal level, right? And so uh, by two academics, Berger and Calabrese, they, they came up with the uncertainty reduction theory and really talked about how you might reduce uncertainty. Because again, uncertainty causes anxiety. It, like We know what the unknown gives us, whether it's fear, it shows up in a lot of different ways, but the unknown, we all know how we react to that. And so um, I think most people talk about this in relation to dating, right? And like how you might cultivate a relationship, an intimate relationship specifically. But I think it, I started thinking about it on a broader scale when it comes to organizationally, how it shows up and and how you can reduce uncertainty in your work life, um, but personally as well. And so 
one of the major things that reduces uncertainty again, that's going to seem incredibly obvious, but like is information seeking. So question asking. And I think just knowing to turn that on, like when I feel some sort of fear or anxiety about like, oh my gosh, I don't know what's coming my way. Or is there a layoff or what I don't know, you know, just sitting down and going, I need to get really clear on the questions I need to ask to feel better. And like, I, I do give this as actual dating advice to like my friends when they're like, I'm not sure if this is going well. And like, just ask good questions, like ask hard questions, like what are the answers you need to feel good? And I think that is true at work. I think it's true personally. It's definitely true in like, when I think about how I advocate for my son at school, when I'm like, unsure about, you know, if that environment is right for him or what's going on, like, we ask hard questions, we seek information. And I think, you know, of course, there's other inputs, like how people respond to those questions, you know, whatever the case may be. But I think asking hard questions reduces uncertainty, and can minimize that anxiety, or at least give you the information you need to be able to make a decision and take that next step. And so I think uncertainty reduction theory, I think all theories are incredibly fascinating. Um, but uncertainty reduction specifically is intriguing to me, because it, it really helps you manage I think a lot of people struggle with at work, which is, again, that anxiety of the unknown when it comes to, again, layoffs, but also just like your role on a team and asking hard questions is the only way, not the only way, but it's like, I think the theory is like seven ways, not just one of like seven ways to, to minimize that uncertainty and minimize that anxiety. I mean, other things, right, are like disclosure, which is, again, you ask questions of the response, you keep going. Like if you're able to get to that point, move on, move beyond just the question, but a, a back and forth conversation around that question, you know, again, more uncertainty is reduced. And so it builds, but ultimately just being able to acknowledge that in yourself and then do something with it for me felt incredibly empowering. And I think for the people I've like talked to about this, um, of course, when I'm giving dating advice, I'm not like this academic theory, <laughs> like, but I'm just like, get, get clear on the questions you want to ask. Um, I think for other people, when they feel this, and this worry and they're able to do something with it. It is really empowering, which is really neat. Um, I think that, that the, the asking good questions um, and getting the information you need, as soon as you said that, it made me rewind back to your warning signs about a layoff yeah. because so much of your warning signs are about a lack of information. Yeah. And when you can't get clarity around things, when you can't get answers about plans and when you when you can't get this information like that's when you know where things are going so I think that that's um that makes a connection that I feel like makes a really beautiful circle here um and thank you for for making this such a perfectly (laughs) circular conversation I love it um and so with that I want to I want to turn to um my last question, which is yeah. my question for everyone that I speak with um, and is the the whole reason for the name of this podcast. And I would love to know someone or some organization or company um, that is doing something that has you really excited, that you find really innovative, um, and whether they see themselves as innovators or not. Yes. Well, one, I love the name of the podcast. I love the question. Um, I want to talk about a company called Real, um, founded by Ariella Safira. I'm probably mispronouncing her last name, which I apologize for. She's lovely. Uh, specifically, Real is, is a mental health sort of community. It The product itself is meant to bring mental health to people where they're at, which, um, right, like I think the example she used with me, was like most mental health apps are like, you know, you've got scheduled talk therapy in the middle of the day, which is like, 
incredibly strange if you think about it, right? Like I'm having this conversation. If I go do therapy, get into childhood trauma, then I'm like, oh, and back to my, you know, pipeline forecasting meeting. Like it's so hard to fit your day. It's not convenient. It's not accessible. It's again, not meeting people where they're at. And real is meant to sort of flip that on its head and, and bring mental health to you where you're at, which again is like after hours is when people struggle most. So anyway, that's the product. But Ariella as a leader is doing something really interesting around rest. She's had like, she, uh, you know, probably annoyingly surveys her team around rest and what it actually means to take rest and and to really recover. And so she's implemented things like a two-week bereavement period. Um, So if you lose a loved one, you have a mandatory two weeks off. It's not like an optional thing, but it actually requires two weeks, which like, and again, I feel like it shouldn't feel radical, right? If I were to lose my husband or my child, the people that mean the most to me, two weeks doesn't feel like enough, but it's certainly a lot more than what some people give just two days. And so, and it's mandatory. It's not optional, which I think is really thoughtful. She's also really thoughtful about shared rest and points to the example of kids in summer break from school, right? They are all able to take a break. Teachers, everyone takes a break. I'm going to get into like, our teachers actually doing a second job, most likely, right? Like we'll get into that, but like, um, but the shared rest is really important. So Ariella also has done a great job as a leader to create shared rest, understanding that like just a summer Friday of half the teams on and half the teams off doesn't accomplish it. Like the whole Mm -hmm. team needs to be offline and everyone needs to have that that space together to actually recover because you can't turn off if you know the rest of your team, especially, right? Like you make friends at work, your best friends Mm -hmm. working and struggling, but you're like off on the beach, right? It's not the same. And so I think this like radical approach to rest is, is really innovative and it feels like it shouldn't be, but it is. Um, I think especially if you look at European companies that they have things like siestas and, you know, these other breaks built into their calendar year or daily year or daily calendar. I think it's interesting. And they even go to the point where I think if you've worked for the company for five years, you get a four week sabbatical. Like I've not seen a sabbatical program built in um, as a part of like a retention program. But I think just this approach to rest is really fascinating. I think right now when everybody is a bit burnt out on mm-hmm. you know, burnt out and like everyone's tired. So being really thoughtful about rest, I think is, is innovative and um, I'm really excited to see what they do with real. So she's lovely. If you ever come across her, like would love, to connect you, but also she's just a great leader. So yeah, I, I'm excited about what they're doing. That's amazing. I'm really interested in the, um, both in real because uh, full disclosure, my next call for today is my therapist. Huh? <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so I had to laugh. Um, oh my goodness. <laughs> I did not know that. I full disclosure, I had no clue, but you know, again, from this conversation full of giggles to like, get in the zone, you know, exactly. What she explained to me, I was like, Oh my gosh, duh. Yeah. It makes total sense. It's totally true. Um, and then when it comes to rest, I think it's so important and it's so hard. Um, and especially as an American who is now living in the UK, it's really interesting to see the differences in how people, um, treat, you know, going out, um, Mm -hmm. going out of town, um, on a, you know, on a holiday, I, especially around Christmas, I would get these out of office replies that were like, I'm on annual leave. I will be back in four weeks. (laughs) You know, in the United States, it would be like, I'm out of office for 48 hours, but you can call me or text me or find me on Twitter, you know, and the, the, the difference culturally in saying, you know, this is my time. This is work time. My time is when I will rest. And I mean, still, we're certainly not getting it right 
here in the UK, but it, it's so it's just such a difference with the US. And so knowing that there's someone who's really taking rest seriously and making it an intentional part of their work, I think is really, really incredible. So um, that's awesome. And um, yeah, I would I would love to talk with uh, talk with Ariella in the future and maybe ask her some of these same questions. So that would be cool. Yeah. Well, thank you, Allison. This um, this has been an amazing conversation, and I am really excited to see um, more about intentional um, intentional inclusion and intentional people led leadership and in the future, and um, see more of what what you do, and also see how that sort of expands out into um, you know the rest of the world of work as as the future moves on. So thank you so much. I appreciate it. Wow. Thanks for joining me for this conversation. I hope you found it as thought provoking as I did. Special thanks to Allison Stemmes, my guest today. Additional thanks go to Danielle Brooks, who designed the beautiful cover art, and to Abhinav Wadva for tech support. You can find both of their websites in the show notes. Thanks also to my friends near and far who encouraged me to chase this wild idea and start a podcast. The podcast theme music is Strangers in the Night by Vocalista, downloaded from Upbeat.io for free.